Welcome to today's episode of The Power of Reinvention. Here we talk with my guests about the dreams, the visions, and the passions that individuals have every day and dare to explore them. Whether it's business or personal, you're entitled to live the life that you want, and no matter what the circumstances, you have the power to create success, fulfill your dreams, and live with passion. That's what I'm talking about. So dare greatly, and happy reinventing, folks. Hi, and welcome to The Power of Reinvention. I am so pleased to have with me today my guest, Richard Adler. I'm super excited to share. My God, we go back so far, it's really going to age me. Not him. I mean, you know, we're not going to age Richard, but we're definitely going to age me. (laughs) But Richard was a former senior executive at Feld Entertainment, also known to many of us as Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey Circus, the Walt Disney World on Ice shows. And I had the great privilege privilege of doing PR and working with Richard and his team and my sister who was involved at the time in doing some pretty incredible things together. And uh, the relationship has carried on. Richard and I are talking about all kinds of fun and exciting things in business together today. So it's really a treat to have you here, Richard. I'm just going to give a little more of your background. Um, at Feld Entertainment, Richard was responsible for over $35 million in annual revenue. He's an accomplished business leader with over 35 years of marketing, strategic, and operational experience across a multitude of industries. He has owned and operated two professional hockey franchises and was previously EVP for the Florida Panthers of the NHL, overseeing multiple departments. And he's also held senior positions at Light Data Labs and Dynergy Telecommunications? Dynergy. Dynergy, sorry. And more recently, Richard's really been focusing his efforts on investing and advising both early and late stage private companies. He's also counseling them in a number of strategic planning, contract negotiation, and capital raise areas. He sits on various advisory boards and committees, including Max Technologies, Pickle Jar, which I'm super excited about, and has been invaluable to the ID Fund. And that's just the beginning. So let's dive in, Richard. I'm so ready to have this conversation with you. I have seen before my eyes so many aha moments and cross points in your life and you and I have come in, in and out of each other's lives over all these different periods. So it's super exciting to be kind of taking you back and having this conversation in this environment. So thank you for being so, here. It's a memory test. This will be interesting. <laughs> we don't have to get too granular, but um, I'm going to ask you this. I mean, you coming know, we, from someone whose mother's got dementia. Good luck with this. Right. Well, we're not quite there yet, honey. You're okay. You're in, you're in good shape. I know that. Um, but I will say that you have had a very colorful history in in all of the work stuff, let's say, that you've been doing. Um, I want to take you way back, though. I want to take you back to when you were a kid. And, you know, did you foresee what you'd be doing in your life? Did you, you know, did you kind of laugh and say, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a part of the circus on, in any capacity? And what kind of drove you to that? Because that was a monumental part of your life. And of course, that's where we met. But what was kind of, the, what was the story leading up to that for you? And how did, how did that become such a big part of your life? Um, I think that the circus in Canada is not what it was in the U.S. You had the Shrine Circus, and that was it. Ringling never crossed the border. Wow. And I never really heard of Ringling Brothers Barnum and Billy Circus, really. So it was an American institution. And um, I got into it. So going back, um, I had a, um, like, scholastically, I hated school. School was a challenge for me. I didn't like people telling me what I could or could not do. And so I was in the university. I was 16 when I started the university. And then uh, the first year was great. Then my friends showed up the second year. It was not so great. So I ended up going to Georgia to school. And I was fortunate. This is back in 1969. So Vietnam, right. all this stuff going on. Right. So it was, it was kind of, you know, it's kind of funny in a way in that I, um, they have this, you know, the college handbook. Yes. It's huge. Yes. Well, I went through that and I applied to 
University of Texas, El Paso, East Carolina, yeah. and Valdosta State College in Georgia. And my parents said, you're not going to Texas. We'll never see you. And I said, well, I'm not going to East Carolina because it snows. Right. So Valdosta was on the way for them when they were going to Florida. So we decided. So that's so weird. It had nothing to do with education. Oh, my really, God. terrible. So I took it. One of my class, I took French. Yeah. Because I spoke, I speak French. So I spoke better French than the teachers. So that's. It was a GPA thing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I never realized all these years until more recently that French was, you know, a big part of your life, because that was also a language for me growing up that since I was 12 years old, that I was so passionate about and always leaned into and always learned. You know, I owned I owned electronic stores in Montreal when I was uh, 20. I was doing I did a shop at home. I went into the east end of Montreal, which is very French. Yeah. And I, I was forced to really, really learn and and, uh, and work it there. And I would buy an ad in the French TV Guide. So you remember the old TV Guide books? Oh, yeah. Well, they had Love one called those. TV Hebdo. And I bought an ad and said, you can own this entertainment system for $99. Just call. And, I'll, and so I would show up at their homes. Wow. It was a shop at home thing. And <laughs> I had a catalog. So I went for my $99 stereo to high-end Onkyo equipment. And I had a deal with household finance, and French Canadians love to finance. And so I would, instead of their $100 system, I'm walking out with a $3,000 stereo system sale. Soul sale. Wow, you you were very enterprising from an early age. I think I was 20 years old because I was was 16, 17, 18. Yeah, it was 20 when I started. What was, was that so, an influence from somebody in your life? Was it just you were driven? Okay, so there was no, somebody no, here. Uncle, it was your uncle. I owned Juliet Electronics, which is actually a company that's out of, out of Miami. Uh, a couple of Cuba guys that started and became very successful. And uh, he, owned the, he owned it in Canada. So he had brought me in and he opened it up and he provided me all the, the backing and the, the equipment and stuff and and then, so that I had, it was a small store. I mean, it was maybe 20 by 20, but it was pure shop at home is what I wanted. So then I opened up, after in a year, uh, a full-blown brick-and-mortar electronic store. And I still had this one, but, and I lived, I didn't live down in the area. I lived in the English part of town. And I can't tell you how many times the alarm went off. People trying to break in and steal stuff. Seriously? And so, and long story short, I was very responsible. You know, all my friends are still working in school. I'm working. I have money. We're going to we're we're, we're going to clubbing and borrowing and stuff. Right. But I'm paying because I have money, and they're still students. Right. They're like, I got this, guys. Yeah. yeah so it was really so after t- two years. So during that time, the French Canadians were uh, having this whole separatism issue. Yes. When they were blowing up mailboxes and killing people, so the yeah. fort got killed. Yeah. And so I moved. I shut it down, and I moved to Toronto in 1973. So I was 24, and um, I went to work for my uncle. Yeah. And at the time, do you remember Pong, the original Pong game? Yes. Well, that was a company called APF Electronics out of New York that had the rights to that from Atari. Wow. They weren't allowed to be sold in the U.S. because they left a mark on the screens, on TV screens. Wow. Canada didn't care. I sold every Pong game coming out of Asia. Oh. I had five clients, and they were the major department stores, and every, every day I took a different buyer to lunch and said, how many do you need? Wow. And you were a little hustler. You like really, yeah, my uncle, you worked my hard. Really, he taught me well. He taught me how to take really good care of the buyers. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but ironically enough, you know, my first job out of, out of school, when I got home from the UF in the States, from Georgia, yeah, my dad gave me six months and said, you either find a job or you're out. Right. So I went to work for Vic Tanny's, which is kind of like Bally's. Yeah. The, the health clubs. Okay. Well, that's where I really learned how to sell uh, because they put me through the Vince Lombardi training school. Wow. And it was unbelievable. Wow. I could sell death 
with the best of them, to people that came in. You know, I have these young people come in to, to the gym. Yeah. I put them on the bike. I crank it up. They were dying by the time I was done. <laughs> You're like, and this is why you need it. <laughs> exactly. And this is so it was the kind of, so depending on your demographic, you came in, I sit in the office, I talk about it. People who I knew were smokers, I'd sit and talk to them. I'd look at them with my pencil. I'm drawing a heart, a lungs, and I'm kind of gray, sh- shading it in. I said, you know, if you don't come here and start working out, I turn it around. This, <laughs> this is, is you. <laughs> Oh my God! You have always had this. That it's the best sales course ever, and I learned that until someone tells you no seven times, it's your fault. You haven't. You haven't. You haven't like pulled back the onion layers enough. I agree. No matter what it is, yeah. And you'll you'll get closing questions, and if they say no. Okay, I haven't done this right. You go back to the beginning. Yeah, I love it. That's where I really Do you feel like people are people doing that course anymore? Is it around? I mean, there are so many wonderful courses in that world. There's Amanda Holmes, who was a guest on my show once, Mm -hmm. who um, was part of the Chet Holmes, her father's, you know, sales courses. Um, And there are so many, but, you know, it sounds like this one is probably one we should all be taking another look at. you got to remember that was in 19... um, Maybe 1970, yeah. 71. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it so did you a lot of good. Years ago. So when did you transition to, when did, so, when did, yeah, when did Feld or what, what was well, after I that? I was, living, I was living in Toronto. Yeah. Back in there. So I'm there from, from 73 to 70, 74, 76. Um, so I'm making about $60,000 a year back then. Yeah. If you Google what that, that is, today, I know I was going to say with the rate of inflation, like it's almost a quarter of a million dollars a year. Yeah, that was a lot of money back it then. Was, it was really stupid money back then, but I was a very stupid person. I spent a lot of it. <laughs> right. And I'll tell you how bad it was, how derelict our whole group was. And you know, we're, we're so we're, we're living in Toronto with another guy, a, a friend of mine, and so we're in the we're in the lot. Toronto is very Victorian. Everything closed at midnight. 1230 at the latest. And we're from Montreal where it never closed. Yeah. So we're in line one night at a, at a, at a bar waiting to get in. It's seven o'clock. And we looked at each other and says, you know, we should go to Montreal and go to the pub. We, whoa, 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 we won't wait in line. We went to the airport, got on a plane and came back on the seven o'clock flight in the morning. <laughs> Oh my God! You guys oh, yeah. are crazy. Is, we had a we had a very interesting group of friends growing up. <laughs> but you know, it was a kind of, listen, we had the money to do it. Yeah. So, well, you you so lived large. My, you could. I mean, you worked hard and yeah. you played hard. So we uh, so at the time. So this is now nineteen seventy six. First part of seventy seven. I got a call from David Rosenwasser. Who worked for Ringling? Mm-hmm. And he said, I said, I said, how'd you get my name and number? He says, Well, apparently your next door neighbor in Montreal at the time is building the first skyboxes in the US in Boston, in the old Boston Garden. Wow. So they had gotten to be friends, started talking, and next thing I know, he calls me and said, Would you be interested in coming to work for us? Because they were looking for someone because they were looking at possibly coming to Canada with shows. Okay. Right? So I said, sure. So I flew down for an interview, nice coat and tie. I get in David's car. He reaches into his glove compartment, takes out a pair of scissors and cuts off my tie. Oh, no. Oh. Are you kidding? Yeah, I'm not kidding. So we and you know, Ringling's headquarters at the time were in, uh, in, in, um, in Washington. Ah, uh, yes. Literally around the corner from the White House. Yes. 18th and the camera over there. But anyway, so yeah. I went... And I met Alan Bloom, yep. who ultimately became my mentor. And it was, you know, at the time it was Urban Feld, his brother Izzy, but really Urban ran it, and Alan. They, yep. they, they were, were it. They were the greatest show on earth, yeah. right? And Alan, so we're sitting there talking, and he says, why do you want to come work for the greatest show on earth? I looked at David, I looked at Alan, and says, you called me. <laughs> right. Who said anything about me wanting to work for you? So anyway, long story. They you know they they said come to work, two hundred dollars a week. Wow, really? Yeah, 
two hundred bucks a week. Yeah, and uh, so I go home. Yeah, so you, father, yeah, you had to like really. There was a big, you know, inflection point for well, you. Well, I was very fortunate because the only benefit out of going to school in Valdosta, Georgia, in nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, I lived. I was there for two years. It's a whole different, but I live with two other guys on top of an abandoned funeral home. Nice. Real nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. It's interesting. <laughs> so I went down to get a social security number. Well, back then, they said, what's your address? I gave it to them. I got a number. So I was able to work in the U.S. They still had to go get my green card, so I went through that whole process. Right. But I was, that's why I was able to do it. Amazing. That was, yeah, yeah. That, the whole Valdosta thing is a whole separate discussion because the first year we did that, one of the guys that I lived with actually ended up working for the uh, government, the, the federal government. Right. In the, the secret part of the government. He's, he's a military guy, oh. very good, really good guy. Right. And then the second year I was there, I joined a fraternity. This was an experimental thing for me, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I wanted to see what fraternity life, the Greek life was like. Yep. I tried that. And it was as sick as they say it was. We were the only fraternity that had its own building off campus. What fraternity was it? Uh, Sigma Phi Epsilon. It was a SIGA. Okay. And they were some I was a Delta things. Gamma, a DG. Oh, yeah. It's an interesting life. I experimented, too. Good. I didn't join till my junior year, and I went through um, informal rush, not regular rush, and they needed to add five people to the house, and it was kind of like I was friends with all the girls, and... It was it was not the normal process that one goes through. Mm. So that worked just perfectly for me. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. It was very, very, you know, I got to remember this is like 1969, 1970. Right. You know, this is, you know, this is when the tracks, and Vada is a very, very redneck city. And this is where the tracks really divide yeah. the town. Yeah. I mean, it was very eye opening for a Canadian. Yeah, I bet. I mean, and I remember going there when I first got there. They said, you got to go to this class. I said, okay. So I'm in there, and then uh, there's these two these two girls from Finland. They're there, and there are these other people. And they're, they're talking to everybody. And I, and I, so I raised my hand. I said, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. They were all Rotary Club uh, students. <laughs> they were on scholarships. I said, I came I, here on my own. <laughs> I do not belong in this room. That's hysterical. It's so funny. So let me ask you this. You you join Ringling, right? You joined the Feld yeah, Entertainment 19, Organization. 1977, yeah. And did you travel a lot around the country? I mean, the shows were touring. Um, there were multiple shows, Red Units right. and Blue Units, if I remember correctly. Because mm -hmm. for those who don't know, we, my agency, my sister and I that were working on this, um, we were handling PR. We worked with, um, you know, Richard and, and all the team, but there was a red unit and a blue unit. Um, so were you traveling a lot? Were you moving around the country? And from your point of view, you know, was this, you know, I, I feel like the circus then was it in entertainment. You know, we were in an era where television and streaming and everything that we live with today was was really it. It was a big deal when the show came to town and you and I both know what we would do when the show came to town and, and all the fanfare and hoopla around it. But we're living in such a different world today and I'm curious to know your perspective of the role for a circus in today's world for young families and kids and, you know, children of all ages, obviously. Well, well, when I first started, the first city I went to was Cleveland to work with the, David Rosenwasser hired me and he sent me to go work for this uh, other promoter, Tom Crangle. And I was there a month and David reclaimed me and I ended up going to Boston for the show and was there in October. David really taught me how to be a promoter and what it, what it was like. You know, the circus was always special because back then you didn't have a circus. So you had very few family shows at all. So it was actually an obligation on the part of most cities to put family entertainment in the, into the venues. Right. So Ringling carried a lot of juice, yep. a lot of club. Yeah. You know, and if Ringling didn't get what we called the big four, it was uh, merchandise, programs, uh, cotton candy, hmm. uh, one other camera, the four things we had to get, we didn't get them, we didn't go. 
And to show you how powerful Ringling was, and I'll come back to where we are and what's missing today yeah. with not having Ringling the way that with animals. Yep. We, we did, um, the state of Tennessee decided to impose an entertainment tax on traveling shows. Well, it was targeted at Ringling because we owned the, the Ice Falls and Hollywood Ice. We had Disney with Ringling. And so we told this, every city, Knoxville, Memphis, Nashville, uh, Johnson City, we're not going to come. And all the building managers said, well, you've got to come. We didn't go for five years to the state of Tennessee. Wow. Because <laughs> there were plenty of other cities that wanted the greatest show and all the, the shows we brought. Yeah. So long story short, we ended up not paying the tax. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, thank you. Not necessarily. We ended up eating it. So, you know, it was a, um, you know, Ringling was not having the circus. You know, the whole issue with PETA, yep. the animal rights people, yep. the Ringling took really good care of the animals. Yeah, I know. It was their livelihood. I know. I mean, we took great they care of They were like the children. They were like children they were, to yeah, the circus. No, they were more important than children. <laughs> <laughs> they really were. And it was, you know, there's... And not having, I know my grandkids, for them not to be able to go to see a circus yeah. with animals, yeah. they're missing out. Yeah. You know, I take them to the zoo. Yep. So you see two elephants kind of walking around. The tigers, if they show up out of their caves, sleeping, it's just not the same. Yeah. No, I mean, really, and, and, you know, there are so many great stories. You know, I was in Boston one year and uh, the Red Unit, Gunther Gable Williams was there. Oh, yeah. The whole thing was Gunther Gable Williams with, with command, a herd of elephants, 21 of them, because every herd is three. Yeah. So a herd, with his voice alone, the elephants, quiet, please. The elephants come in, they're circling the track, and it's deadly silent. And this working guy screams at another working guy, and all the elephants get up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was hell to pay with a working guy with Gunther. <laughs> oh, my God. I remember him well. And, I mean, it truly was magical, though, to see the playfulness yeah. and the interaction, frankly, and the relationship between someone like Gunther and the elephants. And, you know, look, we, you know, we, we both have history and experience and memories, and clearly you're as much greater and longer than mine were, but... You know, you think of just like the international presence, the talent from all over, like you watch something today, like America's Got Talent, and you're seeing all these different acts coming on the stage, and you're going, wow, this circus was such a celebration of so much talent and people and cultures. I mean, they took pride in the people and the cultures and where they came from and the families that they brought into the circus around them. You know, you had these parents that were the flying trapeze artists and their kids growing up in a circus environment. It was, it was really special. I think it's such a, so such a lost art, you know, in today's world of electronics and gadgets and, high-end expectations that, you know, there's something really heartfelt about, you know, the circus coming to town and the dancing girls and the clowns and, you know, the, the animal walk into town when the circus came to town. I mean, that was really, it was really precious. Yeah, it's, you know, it'll, it'll never be replaced. You know, Cirque du Soleil, and I know Guy Le Liberté, who founded it. Yep. And I'll tell you a great story. Uh, I had the show in Glens Falls. Uh, I think it was Gunther. And um, so I had gone to Montreal because my parents were there. I went to visit him before the show would start it. And so I went to see his the Cirque. It was his first tent. And mm -hmm. I met Guy. Yeah. We were talking. And so I watched the show. I said, it's pretty good. So he, I said, why don't you come down to see us in Glens Falls? So he comes down with his, all his development crew, his team. So we're sitting outside in the parking lot after the show. And, you know, I got him all the light swords, all the tchotchkes we used to sell, right? Yeah. And he says, do you think you guys can help us come to the U.S.? I said, oh, uh, let, me, let me go back to Washington and ask. Yeah. So we had just come out of the Monte Carlo Circus, where the best acts in the world in a one ring coming out of a large screen proscenium. Yeah. And we bombed. Wow. We lost our shirts on that. So I go to Washington and I'm telling Irvin and Alan, I said, you know, this is something very special. We should look at that. And Irvin says, 
It'll never work. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's classic. You yeah, know? it's a classic story. That yeah, is. So you, you, know, you had it all figured out. It was, you know, he's a good, he's smart. He's very smart. So when, when did you him. know it was the right time for you to leave the circus? And what was it that when you did leave that, you know, what was that moment in your life? I think that, you know, Alan Bloom always allowed me to do stuff on the side from Ringling. I did a money show in Hartford. I hired people to do a flat show. We brought in and this got remember this is pre-computers, right? Yeah. Pre-self, this is old technology. So we had the New York Stock Exchange, we had NASDAQ, uh, the American Exchange. They all came up and I hired people to sell. It was about how money worked. So we I rented a space next door to the arena, a flat space, and we did a money show. And what they did, people traded and stuff, and they had speakers, and they would go back on Monday, inputted all the trades, the old-fashioned way. Um, I did a Toys for Adults show in Atlanta yep. for two years to my agency partner. It was all the stuff you really had no use for or wanted to have. So you had the boats, the Ferraris, the cars. Same thing as a flat show. And I ended up um, promoting NHL preseason games for the Boston Bruins. Yep. Harry Sinden, who was president of the Bruins, became a good friend. I would always, you know, I'm from Montreal, and I love hockey. I'd always go sit with him and watch games up in the press box in Boston. Yeah. So I came back from St. Louis, and I remember today, uh, I just closed the show, and I'm driving home in Atlanta, and I get a call from Harry, and he says, we'd like to take our games, our preseason games on the road. Do you mind helping us? I said, no, let's, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah. So we did two. My deal with Harry was we had nothing. We handshake deal. Yeah. We just um, whatever the costs are, either come down, hotel, whatever. We'll take it off the top, and we just split the we split everything else. So the um, the first year um, we did Philadelphia and Washington on a Friday Saturday in the on the old Omni. Yeah. Those games were sold out. Wow. It was like being in Boston Garden. So we did that, and the second, that was in 1988. In 1989, in like September, when they start the games. In 1989, do you remember the I Love New York ad campaign? Oh, yeah. I did an I Hate New York weekend. (laughs) (laughs) We had the the New York Rangers and the New York Islanders come in, same thing, Friday, Saturday. Right. And it was like being in Boston Garden. Oh, my God. And all hell broke loose. It was, it was great. So Harry says, he said, why don't we bring back the Calgary Flames, the old Atlanta team? They had left. Yeah. And they moved to Calgary. And he said, okay. So we're there. Calgary's in town. And we're doing like 9,000 people. Wow. And Harry looks at me and says, you know, Canadian teams never never really drew well here. And Harry, it's a little late to be telling me. I know. Right? Yeah. So but in, in the interim that year, I got approached. There was, a, there was a group of, of guys that were going to start a new league, the North American Hockey League, to go against the National Hockey League. Miami was in Cleveland. All the major markets, there was a guy out of Cleveland and this guy, Wild Bill Hunter, out of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And they kept coming down to the building, the Omni, and talking about hockey. And Bob Williams and Bob Dewey ran the, the building and said, if you want hockey in this building, you better go talk to the circus guy. He's the only one we're letting have hockey in this building. They never did. Wow. They never came down because they were told if you buy all the other owners, if you sign Atlanta, we're good to go. Yeah. So I got approached by a developer, David Berkman, who wanted to buy an NHL franchise. They wanted to make sure hockey would work again at Atlanta. Right. So I said, okay. And I'm still doing it. And I'm still, I'm working. I got a job. Yeah. I said, I'll do it. I'll build it. You put up all the money. Right. I want fifty percent of the team with no risk, and he said, "Okay." So that's amazing. I went and I cut a deal with the building and for the team. And I, I went and I—I um, I remember I was in Lakeland, Florida. At the, we were building the ice shows there, right? And I had my interviews for my sponsorship guy people, and a headhunter was going to send three down. Well, she sent this one guy, Bruce Burge, down to see me, and I spent all day with Bruce. And I called the headhunter up. I said, don't send anyone else. He's my guy. He's guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, I told Bruce, I said, you hire the people, you fire the people. I'll fire you if it doesn't work. 
right? So I, I, I delegate authority, but I yeah. want very strong people. Right. Same thing with ticketing. I found a ticketing guy. So we basically set it up and they ran it. They ended up having 33 people working for me. Wow. I'm still promoting the greatest show. I, I was just going to say, like, we're right. You were yeah. still. Yeah, but I had six people working for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and they were not. But what happened was we had an all-star game. It was the International Hockey League. We had an all-star game in February of 1992. We were going to start playing in September of 1992. They hadn't had an all-star game in 10 years. So we had an all-star game, and that was when, remember when big screen TVs came out, the big giant boxes? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the electronics guy were one of my sponsors for the team. Right. They gave us that to give to the MVP of the league, so of the team. So we have 9,000 people in February to come see players in a league they have never heard of, right? After the first period, the game is terrible, just like a typical all-star game. I go to the box office. I take $10,000 in cash out. I go to each locker room and say, boys, winner take all. A hockey game broke out. All It was unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> it was great. So we go and have a – and so the, the MVP of that game was a player by the name of Ray Whitley. He ended up playing in the NHL for 20 years. And he had the big screen TV. Had to figure out how to get right. <laughs> so after the, par, after the game, we're having a party in underground Atlanta for all the season ticket holders and sponsors who are going to come in, you know, in the right. fall. Right. And a fight broke out between the two teams. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't buy that kind of PR cabinet. Oh my God. That's brilliant. It was great. It was really, it was really. It is. I mean. So I'm telling you, so everything was medieval with us. So yeah. th- this is now September 92. I no one knew what our uniforms were going to look like. We had nondescript stuff for a couple of preseason games and opening night. I had the Atlanta symphony orchestra in the stands and they were my music the entire night. Oh my god! Brilliant. And the players, the pl- they did a national anthem. The players come out, and the players are all in tuxedos, tearaway, because no one had seen the uniforms. Wow! And on the back of the tuxedos were numbers. Yeah, they're numbers. Yeah. So as they come out, they get introduced, and they rip off the tuxedos, and they're throwing them in the stands. That is. Genius. Oh my God. Was, I, I love was, that. I, so everything was medieval. The, our Zamboni was a fire breathing dragon, <laughs> literally. The guy who, who built, you know, the movie The Terminator? Oh, yeah. With Arnold? Oh, yeah. He built all the props for that. He built the dragon for me. And it had the tail, the wings, had the head that faced the glass as it went around. And as kids had come up, he hit a button and fire would come out. You know, Richard, everything that you have said so far speaks so much to the world that you live in. And there is no box in your world. There is no set way of doing things. There is no norm. You know, you were the ultimate show promoter and owner of a team and and everything that you have done has been so out of the box and it just comes naturally to you. Like it's just who you are. And I think it's Kathy, fascinating. I have, worked for, I have worked for a corporation once in my lifetime. And when I was in Houston running the Houston arrows, yep. the guy that owned the, the that owned the team yep. was chairman of the board of Dynagy. Yeah. The energy. Company. Yeah. Um, after my second year of my contract, he said, I want you to come work for me in Dynagy. So, because I said, I know nothing about what you do. He says, no, I'm buying a telco. So he bought a, a company in Denver, 16,000-mile state-of-the-art bandwidth. Yeah. State-of-the-art. Yeah. I said, you come over and you build it. So I went. I said, okay. So I, he put me on the 48th floor of the largest building tallest building in, in Houston with the, with the M&A group, the mergers and acquisition people. Right. They had no idea who I was or what I did. And they thought I was a spy for Chuck. Because I'd go up and we'd go drink beer in his office upstairs on the 70th, just talk hockey. Right. So I told Chuck, you know, I know nothing about it. I went and bought the, um, 
the telco book that has all the words that people are too lazy to say. I mean, it's huge. Right. So I go to Denver to the meeting and I listen to all these people and I say, they're using these, what do you call the words that are short? Um, I got a blank dimension. Anyway, they don't have time to say what the entire word means. Right. And I'm listening to this. I'm going, okay. The first, I said, Chuck, what do you want me to do? I said, you just go do what you do. Yeah. To your point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. First place I went was to Fox in L.A. Because everybody then uses, used Williams for Broadway, Super Bowl, no matter what it is. Right? So the way broadband broadcasting worked, you had a box that's a head end. And all the fiber goes to the building, goes out, and then it gets beamed up. Yeah. Right? So they all use Williams. And when a, when a spot goes down on a broadcast, it's very expensive, right? So we bring Fox, all the people to Denver. They go, wow, this is unbelievable. We had a massive knock. And they said, you know, the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. And they wouldn't do And we, we were saving them thousands of dollars a month. Right. So I go back to Chuck and the M&A guys. And I said, you know, the only way this works is if we start buying companies that need bandwidth and fill our pipeline. Yeah. So I had to deal with Schlumberger for all the energy, you know, the drilling of oil, all the data goes to Aberdeen, to Scotland. So I created a condo based on timeshare. Right. So I had morning drive, even afternoon drive, prime time. And so, and I, so whatever the price was, when you want to send your data, that's fine. But if the pipe is full, you can't do it then. But I said, overnight, it's free. If the pipe's open, Go ahead. And that's what we did. And I told Chuck, this is not going to work. And the M&A, M&A guys told him, no, we can do the same thing as we do with oil, gas, water. We'll create a commodity of it and trade bandwidth. I said, it's not going to work. Yeah. So on my bio and resume, I actually put in, I told Dynagy, it would not work. <laughs> in two years, they're out of business. It wouldn't. It made no, it made no sense. So it was, you know, so, but, but I learned a lot. Yeah. I remember being at a meeting that Chuck called in the uh, auditorium of a theater. We were going to buy Enron. Wow. Remember that movie, The Smartest Guys in the Room? No. Did you ever see no, that? No, I didn't. About Enron? No. Huh? No, I didn't. The only thing missing in that story is Donagy's name never came up. Wow. Because when we said... When, Shell had tried to buy Enron that summer. Right. And they backed out because they could not figure out what Enron did. Dynagy then went. And I'll tell you how good Jeff Skillings, who was the top guy there, right? He ended up going to jail. Yeah. My sons babysat his kids at the Air, oh, at, God. At Arrows game. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's all just too close. Yeah. So anyway, so the uh, when we backed out of it, we went to look. There's no money. That. Pulled the skids out of Enron, but that was never mentioned in the movie, which is very right. Well, I learned about how all this trading stuff works. It was just, but you learned a lot. I mean, and you just sort of touched on it. You learned a lot on the go, but you weren't afraid. And and you know, the listeners of this show, whether they're entrepreneurs, whether they're folks that work for corporate America, you know, we have such a wide audience that listens from all ranges and and scale of of life. Um, you know, what I hear so much and just knowing you is that there's nothing that you won't dare take on. And you, you've kind of learned a lot on the go. Like it, it sounds like you sort of leapt with faith into a lot of situations. You didn't overanalyze it. You didn't, you know, look for the, all the reasons not to do it. You always look for the reasons to do it. And, you know, I, you know, is there, is there, there a secret sauce I'm, here? I'm going to stop you there and I'll tell you why. Because when I took the leap of faith to come here, my father said, I don't think you should do it. Really? And my uncle said, you have to do it. And this is going to resonate to what's going on today. Yeah. He said, the only reason you have to do this, it's the last country in the world that will tell you what you can do, what you can't do, or how much you can make. He says, if you fail, you need to get up and they say, okay, you try something else. That was why I came. Yeah. 
for $200 a week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but that was a very important decision. I mean, given what you were doing at the time and the mm-hmm. money that you were making, you know, it can be very risky to make a decision like that. And some people don't realize that, you know, not every decision has to be forever. But in the moment, in the in the now, if it's the right thing and you're going to learn and grow from it, which clearly it was just sort of the beginning of a whole evolution of things for you. Um, you were fortunate to have that kind of influence in your life that gave you the confidence. Um, was there a time where you, you ever felt like, you know, I made the wrong decision. I got to go back. This was crazy. You know, w- was that even a consideration? Not really. No, no, I think, you know, well, I don't have a rear view mirror. I don't have a rear view mirror. I don't, I don't reflect on the bad things. Yeah. I try to remember the good things. That's a challenge sometimes. <laughs> but I think, you know, experience, it's like riding a bike, right? Yeah. You just get back on it. You figure out how to make it work. Yeah. And I, and I, the challenge I have with a lot of people today, and young people especially, I always hear why they can't do things. Yeah. Don't tell me why you can't do it. I want to know how we're going to figure out to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's looking forward. It's like, you know, it's even the pickle jar thing we're talking about. Right? right. You know, I see the possibilities of that in everything. Right. In everything. You know, and, that, this, and for, those who do, for those who don't know, and you're about to start hearing a lot more about this pickle jar is the world's largest tip jar digital app called Pickle Jar. So download it and check it out. And you can support artists and venues in your local markets. It's it's extraordinary. And it's a company that Richard is advising and raising money for and we're going to be working together on. And it's quite extraordinary. And Jeff and his team have really put something really special together that's going to really change the, the world and the life for emerging artists and a lot of the ecosystem around them, which is really quite special. But on that note, you you sort of see things. You, you have a, a knack for seeing things that have possibilities. You're advising companies, you're investing in companies, you're bringing investors together. What is it that you look for in this changing world? And we talked about, you know, what Ringling was to people of yesteryear, if you will, versus, you know, what we're all leaning into today with technology and the metaverse and digital apps that are going to support emerging artists. What What is it that you feel, you know, what gets your attention that excites you in the realm of companies that you're advising and, and looking at investment opportunities with? This disruption. It's pure disruption. Yeah. And how do you take the disruption and turn it into money? Yeah. How do you monetize it? You know, you know, the, today it's, I remember in Atlanta, I think it was Atlanta, maybe in Houston, anyway, you know, it was very hard. My kids would, would come to games and edgy and antsy. And, <coughs> and I remember telling the Judy, my wife is, you know, I don't know how future generations are going to sit through three hours of an event. Cause I came home from a game one night. And my son, Ian, the oldest, was on his computer with playing um, the flying game, whatever. Were you, were you flying planes? Yeah. And he's talking to someone. And I said, who are you talking to? He says, oh, it's a kid in London. Yeah. I said, England? I said, yeah. I turned around and told you, says, this is a serious problem. You know, how are you going to get this generation, right? Forget, forget my grandkids. Yeah. How are you going to get this generation to come to an event. I don't care if it's theater. You know, I, I yeah. love theater. I'm a big theater buff. I love it. I go to theater. How are you going to get them to come sit through and engage them yep. for two and a half to three hours? I will tell you, back in like nine, maybe 1980, I was in Boston with the shows, and I was talking to Paul Mooney, who ran the building. Yeah. He was president. Of, he ran everything in the Boston Garden. So we're sitting up while the show's going on, having a beer, and he says, you know, one day, hockey... I think is it going to be a studio sport? I think technology is going to change how you view everything. Yep. This is like nine. This is forty years ago. Yeah. I mean that's I mean, visionary, and, yeah. and so I see the stuff today. I see the stuff like Max Technologies, what we're involved with. Yep. In being able to deliver, the um, we can produce a game for a thousand dollars. 
that ESPN pulls up to a game with their trucks. Yep. We show up with a suitcase. <laughs> it's all robotic, high-def cameras. Yeah. It's I mean, changing. it totally changes. Dramatically. Right? And it gives you, the viewer, right. the option of watching the, the mainstream of the game, or you can watch, you pick whatever feed you want to watch. Yeah. So I ultimately see you being able to watch any event, concert, whatever it is, from the viewpoint that you want to see it as. Why should you be able to be at a concert and looking at it from the drummer's view? Exactly. To get that energy. That full, that full experience. Rush, right, right. right. Feel. It's really, it's just a matter of, you know, technology is great. I remember when I was with the Panthers, um, I did a, we, we had to do with a car dealer up in the private restaurant upstairs. And I said, can we do a holograph where everyone comes in? I had a holograph done of um, the Ford, the Ford dealer. Yeah. And we had the holograph in the entryway. It's amazing. So people are walking around and looking at it, and I'm thinking, hmm. Yeah. So it's the kind of stuff we're looking at with Max. Yeah. There's, um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a company out of Europe that, that does Le Petit Chef. Yes, I know it well. It's brilliant. Yeah, so Absolutely it's brilliant. gorgeous and brilliant. And you, and, you know, you see what they're doing now in, in the arrangement of games, right? Right. You can do all the stuff coming out of the ice. Now just imagine if you have these players coming out of the ice and do whatever they It's can amazing. Do. I mean, and you know, I worked with base. Yeah, and it's I look, I worked with base hologram. We, you know, we put Roy Orbison and Maria Callis and Maria came up on the stage, you know, when Roy Orbison was done performing, he would just melt into the mm-hmm. stage with the microphone and the things that you can do, it's not just the optical illusion, it's actually creating very high def very multi-dimensional experiences and entertaining people on a whole other level. And, you know, it, you know, my broadcaster in Atlanta yeah. always had a great line what for radio. Yeah. It's a picture. It's your picture in the mind's eye. Oh, well, that's it. And that's so true. It is. Because at the end of the day, what you're seeing is a real or not real. Depends on you. Yeah. And you know what? It's, also just a matter of entertainment and i think so much of what we just want in life is some joy some entertainment some distraction from you know the everyday world that we're living in and what we're doing and those of us that get to work in this business and help create and accelerate and grow other people's dreams and visions that's a pretty special thing and I think that's something that you're you've been doing for so long, and you get to sort of really be a part of that that story. You know, Ringling was always an escape, right? Yep, always. Yep. So, what's interesting when the economy was bad, we knew when it was going to be bad before it became bad. Yep. But we also knew when it was turning. Yeah. We always knew it. You can tell. It was more popcorn being sold. <laughs> yeah, but more, you know, it was you know, more of the tchotchkes are gone. Uh, but you could tell. Yeah. You just, there, there was a sense, you know, it was, a, it was an escape. And even in bad times, people needed to escape. Yeah. Because the circus well, is not reality. No, exactly. It's, fan- it's like fantasy world, well, that's, right? That's the but beauty. How do these people do that? Yeah. You know, it's just, so it's, you know, I, I think it's missed. And it's, you know, listen, I was very fortunate with Ringling that I was able to do a, a music festival in Montreal. Elton John was our headliner. We had a Patti LaBelle, the Eurythmics. It was unbelievable. Stevie Ray Vaughan, the James Brown. Um, it was great. Amazing. And then I did a Broadway, did a show for Broadway called Satchmo. Life Story. I remember Armstrong. it well. Remember that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. We worked on that one. Yeah. Yeah, Incredible. So no, I think, look, we're really great. Yeah. And, and look, we're very lucky. We're blessed to be involved in the space. And I think that that's another point here that, you know, Again, I think people have to learn, and this is so much my my reinvention topic, that if you're not doing what you want to be doing with your life, stop and really try to tune in to what you're passionate about and what moves you and, and figure out how to be in that space, how to be in some part of that ecosystem of that space so that when you are working hard or you are doing what you need to do 
to get by financially or to make your riches, whatever that is, that you get to really be doing it around things that you love. It's what I've chosen to do my whole life. And I get to do that. It's what you get to do. And we certainly are two of the hardest working people that I know. I mean, there's no question about it. So it, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, well, I still yeah, am. <laughs> those <days are> over. <laughs> That's true. I was going to say, maybe you're not as much as you used to, but, but what you're doing is clever and smart and you're leveraging so much of what you have done and and it's really pretty special so i'm glad that you know kathy what i always tell people when i get involved with something yeah we're not in the good business we're in the great business i love that well that, that's yeah, definitely a, a drop good mic is good as good as it good as easy takes work great is where it really gets you going i love that that is such a drop mic moment it's the perfect place to end this conversation as much as I don't want to, but I get to keep talking to you. Um, Richard, thank you okay. so much for being here on the Power of Reinvention today. Really, Thanks for having me. Really Kelly. appreciate right, it. And thank you for just sharing your stories and some of these wisdoms and inspiration with our guests. And, um, you know, look forward to many, many more conversations together with all that we're going to do. And for those who want to reach or connect with Richard, I'll be sure to put his LinkedIn um, connection in the show notes so you can check it out there. And uh, any other questions or things that you want to know, feel free to reach out to me go to the reinventionexchange.com where you can pick up a copy of my book look at lots of podcasts and blogs and content that will motivate you to your heart's content so happy reinventing everybody thanks richard thanks for listening to the power of reinvention if you enjoyed this episode please head over to itunes to subscribe rate and review the show wouldn't mind a five-star review it would be greatly appreciated also, be sure to visit thereinventionexchange.com to share your reinvention stories, suggest a guest, join the newsletter mailing list, get access to my book, which is called Reinvent Your Life, What Are You Waiting For?, and discover fantastic bonus content with my blogs, and listen in to the Reinvention Virtual Chat series. Don't forget to join me next week for another episode. Please share with a friend, and thank you for listening. Happy reinventing.